Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. In this podcast, Lucia and I are talking with Dr. Jan Willis, Professor Emerita of Religion at Wesleyan University in Connecticut, where she was awarded the Wesleyan University Benzwanger Prize for Excellence in Teaching in 2003 for her, quote, ability to make learning a shared process and open the eyes of students to a culture far different from our own. And full disclosure, for the past several years, Jan has been a colleague of mine as a visiting professor at Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia. It is fortuitous that we are interviewing Jan on the 85th birthday of the Dalai Lama, since Jan is an eminent scholar practitioner of Tibetan Buddhism. Jan Willis grew up during segregation in Docine, Alabama, a coal mining town outside of Birmingham. The Black Baptist Church, the Civil Rights Movement, the presence of the Ku Klux Klan, along with a supportive family and teachers, all formed the backdrop of her formative years. Scholarships took her north to Cornell University, where she studied philosophy, uh, both a BA and MA, and in her junior year and after, found her way to India and Nepal, where she eventually met her mentor, Lama Yeshe. That experience led Jan to continue studies with Lama Yeshe and also earn her doctorate in Indic and Buddhist studies at Columbia University. Jan was listed by Newsweek and Ebony Magazine and other publications as an influential religious leader. In December 2000, Time Magazine named her one of six, quote, spiritual innovators for a new millennium. Jan is an internationally renowned teacher of over 40 years and when I have told colleagues <clears throat> at other institutions that Jan is teaching at Agnes Scott, they remark in disbelief, how did you get Jan Willis? <clears throat> I go on to explain that A, <clears throat> we are blessed, and B, she decided to retire in Atlanta near her family. At Agnes Scott, she has taught courses like Women in Buddhism, Socially Engaged Buddhism, and race and racism through a Buddhist lens. The latter course with an overflowing classroom of students and local community members. Jan continues <clears throat> to teach nationally and internationally at Buddhist retreat centers, including the Garrison Institute, Tibet House US, and Spirit Rock in Marin County, where in October 2019, Jan and Angela Davis were in conversation as the keynote event of the gathering of the Buddhist Sangha of Afri Black African descent. Jan is a prolific writer from her critically acclaimed memoir, Dreaming Me, an African American Baptist Buddhist Journey from 2001, called, quote, a 21st century slave narrative rendered in Buddhist terms by Charles Johnson, a National Book Award winner, to a book of her collected essays, Dharma Matters, Women, Race, and Tantra, published by Wisdom Publications this past April. In his forward to these essays, Charles Johnson calls Jan, quote, an intellectual and spiritual pioneer. As Jan quotes the Buddha announcing to his followers, come and see for yourself. Do not be led by reports or tradition or hearsay. Be not led by the authority of religious texts, nor by mere logic or inference nor by considering appearances, nor by delight in speculative opinions, nor by seeming possibilities, nor by the idea, this is our teacher. With this pedagogical mantra, Jan challenges her students to come and see for themselves. One other thing about Jan I want to acknowledge, she was one of the earliest supporters of this podcast stopping by the studio at the college as I was preparing to do the pilot interview with Irish Shore over three years ago. So on a personal note, Jan's encouragement of not only me, but especially the undergraduate religious studies majors at Agnes Scott, being a risk-taking, exemplary, and energetic teacher and mentor, reading senior theses and supporting our democratic departmental process are all examples of the continuation of her commitment to the life of compassion and activism. We are pleased to welcome Dr. Jan Willis 
to the Nothing Never Happens podcast. Welcome, Jan. Thanks. Thanks so much, Tina. I see you really did do a lot of a lot of homework. That was sort of a lengthy <laughs> introduction. It was so the I'm only way to spend what? It was the only way to spend the Fourth of July this year, immersing <laughs> ourselves in the corpus of Jan Willis. Great, <laughs> great. Right, right. Okay. Radical imagination and protest. Um. <laughs> So, Jan, I just want to start out with a wide open question for you. When you first meet a group of learners, of teachers, of students, what do you want them to know about you? Are we on? Because I see that Tina has stopped. Tina, no, are you? Here? We're on. You're good. Okay. So, thank you for the question, Lucia. Um, I want them to know, and Tina has mentioned some of this, I want them to know that I am an African-American woman, Baptist, Buddhist, teacher, um, who cares about Buddhism, but who also cares about uh, values of the Baptist tradition, that I'm a person from the Jim Crow South, that that was really formative for me. That marching with King in 63 when I was 15 was quite formative. Uh, and that I've been blessed uh, to travel the world, uh, to stand in the Himalayas, um, to meet the Tibetans, to meet a person who, who turned my life around, that person being Lama Yeshe. Lama Yeshe got me to hear the love in my father's voice when my father called me daughter. Lama Yeshe called me daughter as well. But it took his tender loving care mm -hmm. um, to uh, let me hear my father's. So it's been a long, uh, circuitous trip. It's been blessed, and I'm happy about it. Well, well, I hope you can get to some learning. Well, Jan, could you say more about uh, when you met Lama Yeshe and that teacher-mentor, teacher-student relationship, and also how you carry that model that he exemplified into your own teaching? Well, Lama Yeshe just exemplified compassion. Uh, and I needed that. But when I first met him, I was too uh, arrogant to say that, to admit to it. And I wasn't, arrogance probably, that's a stretch. I was too insecure to admit to that. So, so when he asked, uh, why are you here? I was there with my two good buddies, they're still my good buddies. Why are you here? I, I gave a textbook answer. I said, well, you know, suffer, uh, the world is filled with suffering and and I want to get rid of that, and blah, 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 blah. Instead of telling him that I suffered from, you know, feeling unworthy and having come from where I'd come from, instead of saying that, I gave a textbook answer. And my friends, my two friends, they, had, they clearly fell in love with him right from the beginning. They said, oh, he's so compassionate. And I said, well, that's not everything. <laughs> You know, it was just what I needed, but I wouldn't admit <laughs> And then later, Lama Yishi, knowing that, sent me on a trip to study with his teacher. And he mentioned at the time of sending me there, well, you know Hindi, daughter, and you can travel in India. These other two, they don't. And uh, besides my teacher, he's the wisdom. He's the wisdom being. So, you know, so I felt like, oh, yeah, right. So he recognizes I'm real. I'm a real intellectual. <laughs> oh, so it was quite a loving test because after six weeks of being with Gisha Rafton, <laughs> uh, Lomi Yeshi, um, it pulled quite a, quite a, three of us because, <clears throat> well, it's a long story. I get to Dharamsala. Geshe Rafton greets me by chewing me out because I'd taken off a day to visit a friend in Benares. And 
And so when I first appeared before him, he went, like, into bed in the stern, you're late, why is that? And I'm thinking, how the heck does he know I'm late? Huh? Because, uh, I mean, there's no snail mail, and I was bringing a letter from Obama, so he hadn't gotten that, so how's he? No, I've taken off. But he did, and so I spent, he did, he came out of retreat, he, he taught me every every day for six weeks, even though he was in a strict retreat. So, very generous. But when I went back to Lama Yishu, the first thing Lama Yishu said to me was exactly what Yisharatan had said. My friends wondered, why is he speaking Tibetan? Lama, Lama Yishu never speaks Tibetan with us. But in exactly the way that Yisharatan had greeted me, Lama Yishu said, yeah, <laughs> and so I fell over on the floor and said, would you please keep me, take me as your disciple? Because he knew exactly what I was going through. And in, in fact, one day earlier, he had said to me, just looking at me, he says, hmm, pride and humility in conflict, that is really difficult, yeah, really difficult. Then he accepted me as a student and he loved me up. It was really just what I needed. Shin, how do you bring that into your own teaching practice now? When you think back on that mentoring relationship you had, how does that influence what you're like with students? I, I well, I can't go from that story to how does that influence my teaching students, I try to be kind, and I try to, I hope that they will be kind, and uh, I don't know how it translates directly, though I did have a, a grad student tell me after many, many years that I had a kind voice. <laughs> mm. I can't say that on this, can I? You know, what I, I figure my job is to help uh, students to figure out what it is they want to do and then to try to help guide them in any way that I can. I think in the classroom, I think in the classroom, I tell stories to try to bring things alive, particularly because I teach Tibetan Buddhism and, and you know, there's terminology and it's not, it's not all so clear and it takes some time to study and it's, involving languages. I tell stories. I use a philological approach because I'm so in love with languages. And, uh, and I try to get them interested in that. And I've, I've had some good results. I don't know exactly why. <laughs> you don't send them on impossible journeys um, that they're late for. Maybe you do. I've said, yeah, some students have gone on some incredible journeys, but uh, they, they said that they were encouraged to and inspired to, and they've done really, really well. I'm proud of them. Yeah, I've, I've met Jan's students all over <laughs> um, who are now tenured professors, and um, I've seen her with our own students walking by the classroom um, and such great energy. Uh, exudes from there and such support um, even when students can be cantankerous and contrary um, but one of the things um, Jan I have a comment about that there's a yes. there's, an Indian, there's an Indian tradition that learning should be sweet mm. and, and you know that's why if you go into a Hindu temple for example at the end of it you come out and you're offered prasad some kind of dessert, some kind of bit of fruit. And that's an emblem of the fact that learning should be sweet. Mm. I think we do that at Agnes, all of us. We try, we try to engage students and let them know that it's a good thing, it's happy. Yeah. You know? Wisdom is uh, good to have. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, and I think, Lucia, you can add to the, the, this question. Um, we want to get to the things that you teach, the topics that you teach, and how those have evolved uh, from your own experience in, in Alabama and uh, the current um, systemic racism, uh, where you connect Dharma with activism. And um, 
you don't shy away from the really difficult issues of um, the prison industrial complex and the new Jim Crow um, and the, the issues around us. And, and this is going to take a while to unpack. There's a lot to this question of Dharma and activism. But if you could begin by um, defining for our listeners your definition of Dharma and then how you see that connected with, with activism. Right, great. Um, I think often it's the case that people want to say Dharma is, Dharma means uh, the teachings. It means it's a, they vary and it's like what holds us together and what it holds us from harm. Um, in India at the time, 6th century BCE, uh, different masters uh, distinguished themselves depending on what Dharma they taught. A person might say, what Dharma do you follow? That's just what teaching do you follow? Mm -hmm. But I find that a really succinct way of capturing what Buddhist Dharma is about is given in one particular verse of the Dhammapada. It's verse 183. And that verse says, this is Buddhism in a nutshell for me. The verse says, do no harm, practice virtue, discipline the mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. Do no harm, practice virtue, discipline the mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. So uh, there is that ahimsa, that doing no harm. So nonviolence is a key part of it. And practicing virtue, which you need other people to do, unless you're going to call and say, I'm over here practicing virtue, you know, alone. So, and the other thing, is people tend to see Buddhism on the one side and activism on the other, people in the West, because they have an idea that, that uh, Buddhism is all about monks and maybe nuns if they realize women practice also in robes. Sometimes they, they don't know that. But then they, they see them and they think it's a meditative tradition. And only That's all that's happening. But uh, I say from the moment that the Buddha stood up, Buddhism was engaged because otherwise we wouldn't know anything about it. He, his idea was to teach this teaching in order to, order to liberate beings, to make them happier, and to show them the ways to be happier in the future as well. So it's always connected. Well, it's connected through me from my Birmingham days, marching with King. Many of the messages I heard, uh, and still here when I read Dr. King's sermons, I find echoed again in Buddhism, interdependence, our interdependence, which is what you learn the moment you try to meditate on the breath. When you breathe, you take in something that you didn't have before, right? You need it. You're de you, you live in dependence on, on something other than yourself, like namely the air, in this case, the breath. But so there's interdependence, and Martin Luther King talked often about that. I can't be healthy if you're not. I can't be free, ultimately, if you're not in, this, in the ultimate sense. And, and so the things that I'd heard and that I now read in the sermons, I hear again in Buddhism. So it was attractive to me. And then it, it goes into my teachings by virtue of the fact that I'm a woman and that I'm black in America. So Buddhism does have some things to teach us about uh, in some, I think, some positive ways to teach us about recognizing our biases. Since Buddhism does, uh, in the Abhidharma, they're, they're very um, succinct, very clear, and very deep uh, analyses of our mental um, of different minds, in fact, when we encounter things. So Buddhism gives us a way of talking about bias. And uh, from that point, so everybody has it. We come into a room and whether or not we consciously register it, we're, we're conscious of everything, the color of the paint on the walls. And mm -hmm. we react to those things though very subtly. Anyway, from that starting point, where, every, where everybody can accept that we have biases. We can build on when those things get marshaled to give one group uh, advantage over another and when we move into race. So 
the other thing is that I like rap music. <laughs> I figured here's a way of, of not getting too far out of touch with students. Mm-hmm. And uh, so in this course on race and ra- uh, race and racism through a Buddhist lens, I use a lot of music and movies uh, and videos. And if I can just give one example from that particular course, it's one thing for us to read about Hurricane Katrina, whether we read the deluge, the great deluge, or we look at some short videos from Katrina. And it's another thing, and it's more direct in a way. Maybe it's because I like storytelling, and good rappers are good storytellers. It's another thing to listen to Jay-Z, seeing Minority Report. That's Katrina, too. Really short, really succinct. He tells that story. So combining them, you know, students learn differently. Combining them, some students uh, react to uh, those the musical pieces we listen to. I remember that you, Tina, suggested to me uh, Joshua Bennett. Do you remember? Yeah. Oh, phenomenal performance artist, right? Yeah. And and that piece he was doing for, uh, uh, you know, uh, February, <laughs> he was doing for Black History Month, and boom. That piece has had such profound impact mm-hmm. on audiences and, and Denison University. I play that people just can't mm. yeah. so beautifully told the story of America. As we sit and have this discussion in the midst of two pandemics, the coronavirus one and race and mm. racism in this country, I re- I. I, I guess I respond because of who I am to sort of developing some courses and others because of your, uh, because of Tina's encouragement to go ahead and uh, when I was thinking about a paper on this subject to go ahead and do a course on. Hmm. Yeah. You see how I can't answer short and I I'm not, <laughs> bring you back in, just bring me back into the Well, so, if I can find yes. my, my, my background generates much of the uh, uh, the places I go with my research. Mm-hmm. You know, students ask me, I heard what you said, that that person was cursed to be reborn a woman? Uh, where does that come from? Then I go investigate myself. Where does that come from? Then next time I'm ready, I say, oh, well, you know, this text says this, but you know, look at this and look how it's been used. And mm-hmm. that brings me to the current project that I'm looking into this cool about at 10 on the founding of the nuns order. Yeah. So it, it, I guess the broadest sense is organic. Mm-hmm. What happens with my teaching, what I focus on. And because I'm at undergraduate universities where I can do that more freely than if I were at a, a graduate program that where the emphasis was all on linguistics and language. Yeah, if I could follow up just just a bit with that, because uh, I know what you do in your race and racism course, and it is packed full of the most amazing material, you know, from Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy to, um, you know, the the book Nobody and and on and on and on. And um, how do you find uh, students' reaction to that, especially uh, those who, um, I mean, white students in particular, who may not have, you know, completely uh, dealt with white fragility and their own um, privilege. Um, so how, how do you um, help students uh, come and see uh, those, those multitude, uh, myriad in, um, issues in that course? Well, I try to have a reading list that's varied enough. You see, for in that particular course, uh, one of the first books before I saw any of the students, one of the first books was the book by Debbie Irvin, Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race, which is beautifully written and funny 
and tells from the white point of view, uh, a liberal point of view, uh, a, a person's awakening to, to racism in America. Now, in that particular course, the students, I think, for the most part, since there were 28 students in the course and well, 23 were black students, the books that they really liked were, uh, they liked the Brian Stevenson, but they really liked the book by um, Carson Colors. They liked the book, and this is the book I talked with Angela Davis about in that uh, discussion, uh, because she had written the introduction, the foreword to that book, uh, When They Call You a Terrorist, that book. All the students loved that one. And just before that, they also loved, uh, I'm sitting here and I can't put my hands on it. Invisible Man got the whole world watching, right? So Invisible Man, you think Raph Allison, you know, oh, he, this is a young man. He was 29, 30 when he wrote it. Uh, it's going to be, he's going to use literature and rap to talk about, it's a follow-up, a sequel, if you will, to Tunisi Coates between the world and me. Uh, how it is to be in a black male body in America. He uses rap. So the, it's, it's, okay, let's bring this around, Willis. Invisible Man got the whole world watching is a rap tune by Mos Def. Mos Def sings that. And, he, and Mos Def is saying, I'm invisible, perhaps, till I pick up a rock in my hand, then you see me. So that's the point he's making. You know, given the times now, big, tall man, George Floyd. Immediate threat. Immediate threat. Why is that? Why is Eric Garner an immediate threat? Because that day, Eric Garner says, wait a minute, fellas, not today, not today. This is the America we live in, right? So the students, they love the uh, Denzel Smith, Invisible Man Got the Whole World Watching. And then they love Carson Con Colors. What am I saying? Con Colors, first name. Tika, huh? Invisible... Uh -huh. The book title, I can't think of the whole name, Patrice, Patrice Con Colors. Oh, that book they love. Why? I think because she's talking about women and men in black bodies, because she has brothers who have gone through the prison industrial complex. A brother, a huge tall brother with mental issues who's arrested and not given his meds, and then released, once they found him released, holding a paper bag in his shorts on the streets in California. Okay, she knows about that. Now, Angela Davis says, oh, well, yes. I, I, I wrote the book because, not only because we've both been called terrorists, oh, Angela Davis says, but because Patrice is an organizer and she's teaching people how to organize. So she came from that point. I'm coming from the point she knows female bodies and male bodies. Mm -hmm. yeah. At Spirit Rock, when we had the conversation, Angela Davis and I had this conversation, we talked about our similarities. That is, we're both from Birmingham. We both went away to school from Birmingham. We both studied philosophy. She had a teacher in Marcusa. I had a teacher in Lama Yishi. We came back in, to teach philosophy. We had all those similarities. Uh, at, a, at a certain point, we talked about the course I was doing. I told her about some of the text. And she said, and I said, and Angela wrote, the forward to this book. And she said, oh, yes. And I talked about why I liked it. And then she said, why she liked it. <laughs> okay, so she liked it because Patrice was 
so clearly an organizer. And I liked it because of the subject matter. Oh, what she knew. Oh. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. You see, I'm so sorry. I ramble. I go off on a story. <laughs> I try not to do that too often in class. That's why it's good to have notes. Oh, yeah. They're necessary rambles. Mm. It's like trouble. <laughs> On this topic of the current crises and rebellions that we are living through and have been living in, but that are hyper visible right now. Um, we're recording this interview in the context of these mass uprisings, protests, um, following the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and many, many others. Um, and in the context of a pandemic, which is a respiratory illness. Um, about six years ago, after Eric Garner's murder, when the hashtag I can't breathe protests um, were, were really hot, you wrote a short essay on the practice of breath and what that can teach us about this moment. I don't know if you have that handy, if you would be able to read that. There it is. Um, I would, yeah, would you read that for us, Jan? And sure. I, I wonder as a follow-up to that, if you have any additional reflections you'd wanna add about this, this particular moment we're in. Yes, I do and I'd like to. Um, you want me to read this? Okay, I printed it out. So it was under a title called We Can't Breathe. Mm -hmm. We can't breathe. In Buddhist meditation, our breathing is essential. Anapana, meditation on the breath, was the Buddha's first meditation instruction and the basis of all further meditative endeavors. Breathing is not only life-sustaining and calming, it is, form, it, is, it is a foremost teaching aid. It teaches us breathing. In breathing, we sense immediately our necessary connection to what is other than ourselves. Without the exchange of air, inner and outer, we would die. We are not independent. We are dependent. We are interdependent. We are connected with one another. We breathe the same air. The air is neither black nor white. We share the life force of all. If one of us cannot breathe, none of us can breathe fully and deeply, and we no longer experience our connection with one another. If Eric Garner cannot breathe, then we cannot breathe. If Michael Brown no longer breathes, we cannot breathe. If Tamir Rice does not breathe, we cannot breathe. Something is mightily wrong. Something is broken, a hard rock of sadness and pain rolls itself up in our hearts and we cannot breathe. We must do something swiftly and nonviolently to write the moral compass because at this moment, none of us can breathe. Uh, well, what's bad about that? I wrote it six years ago. It's that how often it's repeated these days and uh, I say clearly two pandemics and we're suffering them to, together. We're all, I think, traumatized uh, by them. I think uh, seeing eight minutes, watching eight minutes and 46 seconds of someone's life being taken away from them by the police uh, would never have gotten the attention had we not all been housebound, sheltering in place, and watching. Hence, we watched. And more of us saw what Black people have been saying for a long, long time about us and police brutality, about Black bodies and brown bodies and police brutality. We got to see them because of these little cameras uh, in quick su succession, we got to see what Black people uh, have been saying. I was a little Black girl in a mining camp where only my father, grandfather, and uncle still had jobs because they worked in the steel plant and everybody else, Blacks and whites, worked in the mines and mines had closed. 
So the black men that I saw growing up sat on their porches, glass eyes, glassy eyes, because they'd all been, they've all had their run-ins with the Klan. A Klan area chief lived in Docena, this mining camp. So the one thing I didn't want to become was uh, conspicuous because that brought the Klan. And getting all the scholarships I did brought the Klan. So education, I always thought, was something you had to do in secret. Oh, But I'm, I'm trying to get to, then the good part of it, that we had to run, me, run down schools and the hand-me-down books, and my folks had to stand in line for hours upon hours to buy secondhand books that were no longer used in the five schools. Still, still, you know, we had this great, we got a pretty good education, some of us. We had strong black women teachers who taught us not only English lit, but black lit, you know. I meet black people now. We start to say a certain poem and we make the same gestures. <laughs> we all learned it the same way, you know. Oh, his footsteps hollowed the valleys out and bulged the mountains up. Anybody my age who's black can recite that and make the same gestures, I guarantee. But we want to get to a point where I'm old enough now, so I don't want to keep seeing us go through these things, you know. We marched in the civil rights movement, and we got good results, little by little. You know, but then you have Carol Anderson that says, you take a step forward, and then federal policy, even the federal policy, pushes us back two steps. So a little advance, then back. So just as you know, the next year after the marches, we, we got the Voting Rights Act. But now the Supreme Court whittles out most of it so that now, uh, good on Stacy. We have to have somebody looking out for the vote. We all have to do it. There's my shirt. We all have to vote like our lives depended on it. But so here it comes again. We're all on lockdown, scared to death because we don't know about this disease. And, and we get to witness the murder of George Floyd. And then we get to hear about, oh, Breonna Taylor. And we get to hear about and see the aftermath of Rayshard Brooks. And then, you know, so it's, it's ongoing. There's an assault on black bodies. So I think Du Bois said, what would you want? You know, if suddenly the, the, you were free. Well, I don't know. I have to still say uh, the uh, uh, Simone song. <laughs> you know, I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. Because the chains are off. Well, we aren't free to vote. And the, the chains are off, but we don't have economic equality. You know, we, our the one zip code still determines whether we end up in jail, whether we have adequate health care, all of those things I know viscerally to be true. So, oh. So here we go again. Will this be a chance for change? Well, that's my hope. Mama Isha says it's better to hope than not to. I say, why? I'm angry. <laughs> because doing the opposite doesn't help anything. You know, just being miserable doesn't help you. It doesn't help anybody else. Uh, but we're, we're at a place where in terms of environmentalism, in terms of uh, prison industrial complex and social justice more broadly, perhaps something will happen because those who are marching uh, are diverse. They're young and they have energy. I really hope a change is going to come. Though I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I'm proud of those young ones, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you make a connection in your memoir, Dreaming Me. You, you begin and end, uh, and the, and the, um, the I Can't Breathe essay uh, reminded me of this because it's published in a publication called Lion's Roar. And you use the Lion's Roar <laughs> as, a, as a metaphor in the beginning and end. Um, could you Say something about your own coming into voice. Uh, you certainly had voice as a child, and you, you talk about that 
uh, you know, elementary and, and, and. It always and got me into trouble, Tina. It did. Whenever I would open my mouth just a little. Then the white superintendent would say, oh, you got a smart one in here. So <laughs> Yeah, but the lion's roar is a Buddhist concept. Well, I think that Lama Yeshi encouraged me to roar. Oh, I think he encouraged me to accept all of myself. When the Buddha teaches, it's it's said in Buddhist texts, uh, and some he uttered the great lion's roar. So I I literally had these dreams, which you know. Um, format they did they divide the sections of my memoir these were actual dreams and they were about lion a lion a diminutive lion female lions female lions as a female lion perhaps I roar um, that was the the message I and there have been times when I felt that really strongly those are good times. Oh. One of the things you talk about, this is on the topic of, of, how, of voice and of listening and of the exchange that happens. So throughout Dreaming Me, you describe um, this desire that's been present throughout your life to respond to scenes of race, racial violence, racist terror. With, with dialogue and trying to understand each other. And that even includes in your memoir, mm -hmm. a scene where the Ku Klux Klan is burning a cross on your family's front yard after you've gotten your acceptance to Cornell and that's been covered in the papers. Um, so you write in Dreaming Me, from the time I had wanted to teach those angry, misguided Klan folk who had attacked my family and me, I had considered teaching to be the single most valuable means of communicating and of sharing peace on earth. So you wanted to go out and talk to them. Then in that same paragraph, you end up saying that communication isn't enough, that, that, that it wasn't simply a matter of pumping knowledge into their brains. People had to know they had the ability to use their minds to bring about change. Right. I'm really curious about this sort of critique of the idea of, well, we just all have to talk to each other and then everything would be fine. That is sort of stated in that paragraph that this confidence that you have to know that you can change or to use your mind to bring about change. And I wonder if you could say more about what that means to you and how that connects to your teaching. Okay, great. Thank you. Well, I've always wanted to teach. Uh, I don't know where that comes from. Uh, but part of me thinks that reasoning with people has a better chance <laughs> of getting through to them than an emotional plea. So that's just, that's, that's a given, right? Then I, I actually describe sometimes when Wow, this is pretty cool teaching. Because when I taught the cheers to the cheerleaders, and they said they'd look out for me henceforth. So there was a power that came through that, and that was great. So part of what I want to do, I said before, be kind. I want my students to be kind. I want them to think about others. And I think it's not enough just to know something. And I think that's that's part of Buddhism, too. It's not enough just to know something. The Buddha stood up and went to teach people. So even in the Buddhist thing, it's there. In the Buddhist life story, it's there. But it's not enough to know something. You have to act on what you know. And I want to encourage students. I want to encourage them, let them know they have the power. They have the power to change things. And that's what, but I've seen it before. I'm old, <laughs> and this may be why. You know, I say they have the, the young ones have the energy, you know, and, uh, and I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful as long as there are these young folks and I can see them coming on, whether we're talking about Stacy or we're talking about this young boy in uh, Minneapolis who I think is 
going to be a really good uh, organizer because of his experience there. You want to encourage people to all uh, oh, that they have the power to change. In the discussion with Angela, at one point she said, this, this is how that discussion went. We had to read each other's memoirs. I had read hers long ago, but I read it again. And I've always wondered, you know, this is really great from the first paragraph. You're just drawing it. Then I found out, you know, Toni Morrison <laughs> you helped know, you write that first paragraph. Well, yeah, it worked. Uh, oh, we talked about, she said, from her point of view, in those days, because I said, you know, like, I'm just with the book learning, and you're out there doing things. And then she responds with first stating that she and her sister, Fania, who, who she also brought that evening. Fania, by the way, was her lawyer for some time. And Fania is now really into yoga and some other things. <laughs> of course, Angela's not a Buddhist, so she, she says she's not going to talk unless she can... They can read some kind of format. You might want to take all that up. Uh, Angela said when they were in the struggle, they really thought that the revolution was going to produce imminent results. They thought it could happen like in the next week or in the next year. Everything would have changed. And she, she, she said that. She said all of us thought that. But she says now we look back and we say, well, it's okay, because we, we show that those little changes in increments, those are valuable things. And we're, we're you know, we can see that, that just beginning it was a good thing. Hmm? Oh, okay. I don't know what the other part of the question was. Hmm. Does anyone remember? Oh, the... It was about it was about sort of you you have this desire to talk to people to sort of convince them no you're wrong like we can understand each other and you say no they have to know that they have the they have to know that they can change or that they they have the power to change their own minds and how do you how do you bring that into your teaching I don't we all do that don't we all wish that for our students that they realize that they have the power to make change? Don't we? I don't know. How would you articulate that? You, you love them up. You encourage them in whatever way you can. Uh, and you tell them over and over, yeah, you can do this. You got this. You know? Yeah, and you like model something for them. One of my favorite stories in your memoir is of you um, and your classmates getting out of school for the Montgomery bus boycotts and going to Sixth Street Baptist Church and um, every ask you, the, you can tell the story. The people getting all the students ask, "Are you ready to go out there?" And if you're too fired up, mm. you're not ready to go I, protest. Angela, yeah. People tend to think, you know, of King, I do too. Uh, King as the leader, the, the sole leader, the male leader. But I saw women's place. I saw women's activism. We wouldn't have gotten out there in March. The thing was, the buses came to all the county schools, and the driver would just open the door and say, going downtown, and we'd all pile on the bus. Because the principal had said, during these times of crisis, oh, principal, where are we loving? Uh, classes will be held, uh, but for those people going down to take part, uh, that will not be held against them. So, of course, we all piled on the buses. My parents probably didn't know half the days I went, but for five or six weeks, you know, we, because we had a free ride downtown. We didn't have cars in those days. The bus drivers took us in. We unloaded at 16th Street Baptist Church. Okay, inside there, you had to be cleared by those matrons, you know, who <laughs> fight the old women. Matron doesn't do them justice. They would say, are you ready? You ready to march today? And then, uh, hey, you know, if you were sort of sort of demure, yes, ready, and understand, but 
I saw him so many times. If, if are you ready to march, John? And John, if John said, "Get my ready," like that, she said, "No, John. John, I think you better sit over there and work on your Sunday school lesson. You're not ready." It was about being ready because to march with King, you had to be ready to have restraint, to be nonviolent, to be able to take it, to be able to keep marching straight. But we never would have been able to do that without those women in that church <laughs> who, in letting us go through, who passed us, we felt ready. Okay. And we felt triumphant when we marched. And we felt great when the, when the jails got filled up. So many you couldn't sit down, they tell me. So many you couldn't sit down. <laughs> we what strikes me about Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, what strikes me about that story, there are so many layers of it. I mean, the obvious point is you probably, like the, the lessons you learned in those moments are stained so much more deeply than whatever you would have learned in math class that day. Although I know you mm. liked math. Um, I also, the, I'm, the thing that strikes me about it is this moment of you don't, the, the the moment of like centering and saying, are you ready to do this one by one by one and framing, framing a protest with study and with strategy and that, that moment of pause um, so that you come into what the, the next thing happens in full consciousness. Um, this is the strategy. And that seems like a really important pedagogical moment that it sounds like you do as a teacher that I hope that, you know, I will strive to do to say, let's, let's come into some awareness of what is happening now. Right, right. Yes, good. good. Yeah, good. and we're, we're in a time of crisis that we're teaching in now in terms of what Jan talked about the two pandemics. So does that, do we allow that to uh, change our teaching and bring us to a different consciousness about our teaching? Are you asking that of me? I'm asking both of you, I suppose. <laughs> oh. oh, it's said that we, we, we it's said. Distance is that. <laughs> it has said that. Now I'm thinking about your comment, Lucia, about ready, and it echoed several things for me. It echoed September Clark saying, ready from within in her own memoir. That's the title. Ready from within. It's like somebody said, You ready? Yeah, born ready. She said, ready from within. And that's like a, a calm, I've done my homework. I'm ready the next step then. And uh, in some classes when there's energy all over and uh, they know I've got, I, I have some experience with meditation, I say, okay, do you want to sit for a minute? <laughs> they say, yes. <laughs> we sit and calm down. Just bring focus for the next part of the class. And, and that works sometimes. I would never do that. You know, like let's all meditate. But sometimes it's helpful. <laughs> to set a stage, to be calm, to bring focus to the situation before going further, just preparation. Yeah, and we have a lot to do. I don't know how we're gonna figure this out. <laughs> I can't see the end, you know, I'm gonna run on, see what the end's gonna be. Don't know, don't know. I don't know how to think about it. I still wanna see what freedom's gonna be like. Mm, yeah. I want to see what it's going to be like. I had a great conversation with a person that uh, Tina knows not long ago, a few days ago at uh, Sally and Larry's. And, mm -hmm. and, and we were talking about oh, outside or a table six feet apart, you know, the, we were talking about the situation and whether it was going to change. And, and, and he said, well, Larry, Larry thought that things were definitely going to get better because the diversity of the protests and so forth. And I said, well, yeah, that was good because the Freedom Riders, uh, you know, people get, people get 
interested when their sons and daughters are involved, you know, <laughs> as opposed to being black people marching in the street. Freedom rallies were a mix, right? And so these protests have been a mix. For another reason, not only do people see George Floyd's murder, but the, they see that the protesters have their kids out there. Um, and that may make some change. Uh, we can hope. But he, but he, when he asked me about that, that I feel hopeful, I again thought of the Du Bois. I mean, I just, Du Bois said, what would it be? And I said, Mary, I just don't think it would be anything tangible, you know? I don't think it would be anything tangible. Freedom is going to be on a whole other level. You know? You know about June 19th, now, June 10th, June 10th now. That's why we felt so bad about 4th of July for so long. Oh. So this is just going to be layered. I'll just give you a set of images. Okay. When Barack Obama was inaugurated, 2008, and Aretha Franklin sang My Country Tears of Thee, sweet, sweet, she did it twice, sweet, sweet land of liberty, that was the first time it felt like it. Hmm. Yeah. That was a feeling. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's going to be tangible. What you want is the chain suddenly fell off to be counted as equal. That will call for an incredible revolution in people's perceptions and in their hearts. Mm -hmm. That's the other meditation I wrote about in Lion's Roar. This, this meditation on the equality of self and others. That's going to take some deep work. <laughs> For people to look at you and reckon you as another human being. That's some deep stuff. And I think freedom is going to look like that. And we haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, we have to keep working, but we haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. Yeah. So teaching is, is doing the work of the hope of freedom. Mm. Let's make freedom the path. Mm. Uh, that's still Buddhist too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's liberation. <laughs> that's what freedom would be. Mm -hmm. mm. Well, Jan, we're getting close to time. Mm. And, and we wanted to close by... Uh, uh, just seeing, uh, talking with you about, you know, what is grabbing your interest these days in terms of movies? I know you're a film buff. Um, music. Uh, you know, that's not me. All of that. What are you reading, listening to? What is, what's touching your heart right now and what's challenging you? Well, lots challenging me. <laughs> As you know, Tina. <laughs> can't tell how I'm going to wake up tomorrow, but I'm working on a, a short text, short text uh, I'm trying. I'm amassing huge, huge amounts of, of resources on uh, this text that's had such damaging consequences for women practitioners called Kulavada 10, the founding of the nuns order. And with your encouragement, I started working on that. Uh, but it's really difficult because I, I can't really settle. I can't think of an audience. You know, I started to say, well, we're going to talk about six pages from the Buddhist canon. Now, you understand the canon. The canon is very complicated. But it's not a canon. You know, could take up this room. Or they could take up my whole house in different languages with different traditions. And I want to talk about six pages in one tradition that seems to be the site for all the negative stuff with women, nuns, with nuns. Uh, all the negative stuff that makes them. It's the source, the source of the Buddhas allowing there to be a nun's order. And it's the source of the eight so-called weighty regulations against women. 
namely Ananda ordained for a hundred years, must rise up, greet respectfully, bow down before a monk ordained but that very day. You know, it's got some weighty stuff. That's what I was talking about, guru. Mm. As an adjective, it means heavy. <laughs> guru dhamma means weighty regulations, heavy. The feminine of that mm-hmm. the guru, the adjective, is groovy. So t- groovy, that's <laughs> groovy, man. You know, well, I'm childless. Uh, so here's the thing. I'm working on that, and it goes <laughs> up and down. But I'm reading some interesting stuff, though just pieces of it. I'm reading a piece came out in Tricycle Magazine. That's an excerpt from my book, Dharma Matters. And they paired it with the black woman artist, Betty Sarr, whom I love. You do too? Oh, she's fabulous. Yeah. You know that? Okay. So I, I got, it took forever to get this through Amazon. It had to come from Denmark or someplace with weeks and weeks and weeks. Anyway, so from that, from the Betty Sarr, um, there was a footnote that led me to a book by Devlin that's called A Girl Stands at the Door. It's an early history, social history, of the roles adopted by by young black boys and young black girls in the struggle. And if you remember, you look back even before Brown v. Board of Education, there were plenty of young girls who tried to desegregate schools. I mean, uh, Topeka, Kansas was one of them, but before that, there were many others. And it seems she's developing the theory that that parents with girls thought this was the act, this was the role for them. So the education part was for the girls. It's really uh, just a second. <laughs> sure, I tell you that. A girl stood at the door. A girl stands at the door. That's the title. Great book. So I'm reading that. I'm looking at the one that uh, Tina gave me the other day, which I just started, but it's wonderful the way she writes this with a cast of characters. And so the style is what's bringing me in. It's, it's a, maybe it's my storytelling side. It's, mm-hmm. it's a marvelous way to tell the story of these lost wayward women. So I'm loving that. I'm reading Grand by Charles Johnson. That's his notes to his grandson, Emery. Uh, and that's it. This was the catalog, the Betty Sarwin. This is the new, this was just on. This was last year at MoMA. That's I don't know. It's so cool. It's so cool. It's marvelous. Her work is marvelous. Better rate the footnote was in here about the Devlin book. So I've got several things going at once, and I'm trying to work on that piece. And I think that's it. And I spend far too much time watching the news. Yeah, that's not good for one's soul. <laughs> what? Not good for one's soul to watch. Them. Oh, it's not. It's so toxic. And, you know, this trauma is real. This trauma that we are, this pall that the whole world is under. It's real. So I, I know that's my, that's my, uh, that's a really, my worst habit. Thank you for listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. I'm Tina Pippen, your host, along with co-host Lucia Holsether. Our audio engineer is Aaliyah Harris. Our producer is China Wilson. Our summer research assistant is Kennedy Thedford. Lance Eric Hagen with Aviva and the Flying Penguins did the intro music. And our outro music this time is by Paul Myrie. It's called Smelling Smoke. 
and his music is available on bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening.